Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Domestic violence is a growing problem in Ohio. I'll have more about that in a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents information about the Dr. Richard Strauss case and Ohio's statute of limitations, an anti-abortion bill at the State House, the debate over vaccine mandates, and more. And I'll wrap up the hour with a look at the state of Ohio's manufacturing industry with the president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. First up on Columbus Perspective, Michaela Deming, who is the policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Ohio Domestic Violence Network is. So the Ohio Domestic Violence Network is the federally recognized state coalition for domestic violence and what we do is we we support and provide training and technical assistance to all of the domestic violence programs in the state of Ohio. So we have 75 member programs. So you don't actually run shelters or anything but do you monitor them or what? So the shelters are, are our member programs and we have some non-shelter based member programs um, and they, they do the direct services. We do have some direct services for housing program. We have a legal program um, at the statewide level, but we really provide support, technical assistance, training to all of those direct serving programs around the state. And your website has a wealth of information for survivors and ways for them to basically save themselves and turn their lives around. Yes, we have resources. So if you're not sure where the local programs are available to you, a lot of domestic violence survivors are fleeing violence and going to a place they're not familiar with. We have resources on our website. You can now direct chat with our staff during um, regular business hours. You can also call in to our our, um, 1-800 number, or you can go onto our website, and you'll get connected with your local program or the local program in the area that you're going to. And what is the website? The website is www.odvn.org. Okay. And uh, now you were in the news, you and the uh, organization, in the news this week because of uh, a report that you put out talking about an increase in domestic violence in Ohio. Yes. Every year in October, we release our domestic violence fatality data for the prior year. And our year for the fatality data runs July one through June 30th. Um, And so we put out, we released that report for this prior year on October 5th. You show a marked increase in fatalities from domestic violence. Yes. Unfortunately, we see again this year that we had a 20% increase over last year's total number of fatalities and a 62% increase over two years ago. So we're, we're on an upward swing here for domestic violence-related fatalities here in the state of Ohio. So from July of last year through June of this year, there were 131 across the state. I guess uh, circumstances can kind of run the gamut in in what happens in these cases, right? Absolutely. We've seen cases where there was a, you know, a dating partner um, killing their their dating partner. Um, We see some cases where there is a violent altercation, a domestic violence situation, Law enforcement responds, and law enforcement kills the perpetrator. Um, We saw entire families being annihilated this last year. Um, So lots of different situations. But when we review the data, we really limit this. These 131 fatalities are just domestic violence, intimate partner violence-related cases. 
And what about children as victims uh, in this way? Unfortunately, this year we had the highest number of youth killed that we have ever seen in our reporting. We had 15 people under the age of 18 who were killed in these fatalities. Talking with Michaela Deming, she's the policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. You know, I am in no way diminishing the coronavirus, but since the beginning, 13 people in Ohio under age 19 have died of COVID-19. So more kids have died from domestic violence than the coronavirus. It's 15 children, and and this is the number who were killed, and we know that 25% of Ohio's youth are experiencing domestic violence in before they turn 18. So these are the worst of the incidents, right, because obviously they resulted in fatalities, but a lot of Ohio's youth are being exposed to domestic violence and being dramatically impacted by it um, every year in Ohio. So what sense do you have of the pandemic's role in this, in, in home life and that sort of thing? Yeah, so, you know, everyone's asking, right? Everyone wants to know what part of this is COVID, and it's really hard to say. Um, so I'll tell you that the research that we have following natural disasters and following economic downturns is that in both instances, we see a rise in um, violence against women. That's historically speaking. We don't obviously have, you know, retrospective research on this time period right now because we're still in it. Um, But there are a number of other things that we can look at that are on the rise during this COVID pandemic that we also know contribute to lethality. So they are lethality factors. These things, if they exist in a domestic violence relationship, um, mean that it is more likely that that person might end up um, a a fatality. And so we have things like um, increased mental health issues. We have increases in addiction. Uh, We have increases in folks losing their jobs. We have an increase in people who are um, maybe not getting picked up by law enforcement or or who are being released or not not going to jail during this time period for all of the COVID protocols. You put all of those things together along with decreased access to services, perhaps, or perceived decreased access to services. And and we've got a lot of increased lethality factors onto relationships that were likely already violent. I remember talking to the executive director of your agency, uh, Mary O'Doherty, last year, fairly early during the pandemic. And at that point, numbers seemed to be going down, or at least reports of it, but it was during the lockdown and shortly after, and there was just a almost a sense of grimness about it because everybody knew that that wasn't in reality what was happening. Yeah, we saw a period um, in a lot of our programs during the shutdown of about, you know, that was about four to six weeks or so um, worth of time where it was incredibly difficult, even more difficult than normal, for a domestic violence victim to leave their situation and get access to resources, right? There was a decreased access to the court system, decreased access to being able to leave the house, even call somebody for help. So we saw a little bit of a decrease. At the end of the year, though, by the time we looked at all of the data together, most of our programs saw an increase an increase in the number of calls. And so even with those four to six weeks where the calls were down, it was more than made up with for by the end of the year 
with increased calls, increased levels of, of violence and injury and strangulation that were being seen um, in the shelters um, and in the programs by the time folks were able to get to help, um, they had experienced more violence. So all of, all of that together, we ended up with, with a pretty dramatic increase in the amount of services requested and needed during, uh, during the past year. And the number of requests, people who are in need of shelter, that's overwhelming. There's not enough in the state to handle that. Is that correct? Yeah, so we do a, a, a census every year. Um, we, we pick a, a day in September where we run all of our, our statistics. And in a single day here in Ohio, 252 requests were unfilled. Wow. Not all of those are for shelter beds. They might have been for shelter beds. They might have been for somebody to help with a protection order or a legal service or for long-term housing or child care so that they could get to an appointment, right? Um, so 252 unmet needs for survivors in a single day here in Ohio. Wow. And how many are met per day? Do you have any idea on that? Um, yeah. We serve roughly um, 2,600 a day. We served a total of 111,000 people last year. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And from what I understand, federal funding for shelters is being reduced. Is that right? Yeah. So we have been on a, on a I keep saying the word dramatic, and I feel like I'm, I'm understating this. We lost um, about 40% of our funding um, from our main funding source, the Violence, uh, Victims of Crime Act funding for that's the federal source. We've been losing about 30 to 40 percent of that money per year for the last three or four years. So just to give you a, a number on that, last year, so in October of 2020, our programs lost $7.7 million in funding just to domestic violence programs. And then in October of 2021, those programs saw another 40 percent decrease in their main funding source, that's VOCA funding. So we are down tens of, of millions of dollars worth of service money to keep our doors open to make sure that we're able to serve all the people who need services uh, right now. And, and that is, that's not a, a problem unique to Ohio, um, but it's definitely affecting all of our programs. It's a real complication, though, because right now cities, some cities are awash in federal money since the pandemic. I mean, they're they're building recreational facilities and doing all this kind of odd stuff that they never thought they would have money for, and they're spending the money to do that while this is going on. Yeah, and I will say that the American Rescue Plan Act specifically mentions in its, um, um, in its information that the funding can be used by these cities and these counties and townships. That money can be used for domestic violence uh, survivor services. So instead of, or perhaps in addition to building those recreational facilities, they could absolutely be spending money to increase the services available for domestic violence survivors in their communities. Talking with Michaela Deming, she's policy director and staff attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. What's happening on the policy front with state lawmakers and domestic violence? Yeah, so we've got a number of things. I've got a little bit of good news on this front. We were able to get in this um, biennium uh, budget an increase um, for our state funding. So last annual budget, 
Um, we were allocated a million dollars a year for domestic violence programs. Uh, that was the first time ever in Ohio that we had a state line item funding for domestic violence. That amounted to about $12,000 per program. So incredibly grateful for the money. $12,000 also doesn't go very far for each shelter in each program. So this year, we were very fortunate to get our, our state lawmakers to authorize an increase. And we were able to get $7.5 million in the budget over two years. So not quite as much as what we lost, um, but definitely a significant increase, a significant investment in domestic violence survivor services here in the state. So that's, that's a good point. We do have a number of other bills that are pending um, that we're working on. We've got House Bill 3, Aisha's Law. That would, among other things, it would really address um, the, the issue of strangulation in the state. Um, we are one of the last or the very last states in the country that does not treat strangulation as a felony. We know that there are seconds, literally seconds of difference between life and death when strangulation um, is being used. And yet in Ohio, it's still mostly charged as a misdemeanor offense, as long as you're doing that against your, your intimate partner. If you do that against a stranger, of course, you're likely to get a much higher charge. So we are looking at making strangulation in domestic violence situations a felony, and House Bill 3 would do that. Senate Bill 90 would also do that. Um, so those are two bills that are pending. Another thing that House Bill 3 would do in addition to that would be to um, increase education for law enforcement officers and increase the, um, the linkage between, you know, when law enforcement is on the scene, getting those victims linked with domestic violence programs and services right there at that, at that moment. So I, I wanted to tie one a, a piece together. Um, about the, the fatality statistics that we have for this year and some of our policy work. And that comes down to the bail reform bill. That's House Bill 315 and Senate Bill 182. And we saw this year that at least six of the violent uh, fatal incidents in our, in our research, um, they were folks who were on paper, right? So they, they had pending domestic violence-related offenses in the court. They were out on pretrial release, and the, the fatality still occurred. And the current pending bail bills would actually make sure that every domestic violence misdemeanor offender would have to be released pending trial. So even if a court was able to see how dangerous the situation was, um, they would be unable to hold those offenders, and, and there's no additional safety mechanism for those victims then to to stay alive, frankly, while that case is, is pending. I think most people are probably familiar with the recent death of Gabby Petito. Uh, the couple uh, who were living in Florida, they were traveling out west with, in a van, and, and they were stopped, I believe it was in Utah, and police, there's a, a video about an hour long of police talking to both of them and trying to determine, for the most part, whether to charge her with domestic violence. And the whole thing is just troubling all the way through it. But you also can have some feelings for the cops who are trying to sort all this out and the difficult decisions that they make in situations like this. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's law enforcement, it's, it's the police it's, and, um, and the judges and the probation officers. 
everyone who's involved in these cases um, absolutely wants to do the right thing, is trying to, to do their best with the information that they have. Um, and yet, we still have really high rates of, of fatalities related to domestic violence. And so I really think it's in looking at reports like the one that we've issued, looking at the, the really rich research that we have about lethality factors that can help us look at situations and have a, a we, it it's not 100%, but we can have a better idea of which cases are, are more dangerous, might need more intervention or different intervention. Um, and that's, that is one of the things that House Bill 3 does, would make every law enforcement agency in the state do a lethality screening at the scene of domestic violence incidents so that law enforcement would have a better idea of how dangerous the situation is, as with the victim. Um, and we have existing laws on the books where those lethality factors are supposed to be presented then by the prosecutor to the judge. So the judge can make better decisions about pretrial release conditions um, using the, the research that we have about why and how some situations might be more dangerous than others. If there's a call for domestic violence and, and an officer responds to a home, are they required to arrest someone or how do they work that out in Ohio? Yeah, we have a preferred arrest policy in Ohio, so there should be. Um, an arrest that happens. It does not always. And there's some, you know, really complicated considerations around that. In some instances, both folks are arrested um, because law enforcement is unable to determine the predominant aggressor in the situation. Or, you know, we see situations where some injuries don't appear or aren't external um, until later. And we see that a lot with strangulation. Um, If a victim is being strangled, they are likely to you know, try and save their life, which might result in scratch marks or, or a bruising on the face or the hands of the person doing the strangulation. And those might be the only injuries that the officer sees on the scene, as opposed to seeing the strangulation injuries, which might, again, just be internal, um, even if the person is, is about to die. And so there are some really complicated decisions, I think, as you already mentioned, about what does law enforcement do on the scene when they're getting very different reports of what has happened. And how do they make those safety decisions on the scene? So there is a preferred arrest policy. There is supposed to be one person who goes um, and and gets booked um, when that uh, incident occurs. Um, But there are reasons that it does not always happen. Um, And there are some times when both folks get arrested. Well, I think, and again, uh, bringing up the Gabby Petito thing, uh, you know, she ended up being killed. We don't know if her boyfriend is uh, responsible for that at this point, but... You could see the police agonizing over what to do in that situation. Yeah, really complicated. Um, and again, those are the, the situations that we are often in. Um, it is very difficult because you're going to get, at all stages in the process, a different version of events. Um, and the, the better training that people have um, who are trying to make these really complicated decisions the more likely we are to end up with decisions that are going to to lead to better safety for the victim. Talking with Michaela Deming, Policy Director and Staff Attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. When the the whole thing came out, uh, the phrase defund the police, the people who were 
making that point. We're not, I don't believe, talking about defunding the police, but one of their proposals is to have social agencies and, and experts in the field involved more in police calls and that type of thing, maybe to be among the first responders to a situation like that. Are you an advocate of that? Yeah, so we have seen some success in programs that we have here in Ohio, um, actually. Uh, Cincinnati's got a program going um, specifically, and I know several other places do, where um, domestic violence victim advocates do ride-alongs or come to the scene as soon as it's cleared, of course, for safety, and do some immediate intervention. And we have seen some really great results in decreased uh, fatality and homicide rates when those programs are in place. Now, unfortunately, when we talked about those cuts to funding, those are some of the programs that go when our funding gets cut. Right. Um, so we have seen improvements. We do have some promising practices around how can domestic violence programs and law enforcement combine efforts uh, to do better responses on the scene. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll get some, some statutory changes and, and, frankly, some funding to be able to expand that, those best practices around the state. Talking with Michaela Deming, Policy Director and Staff Attorney for the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. Anything else you'd like to add? I would just like to to thank you for having me on and and let folks know that um, even with our funding cuts that we have mentioned, um, our programs have remained open throughout this pandemic, and they continue to remain open. So if, if any of your listeners are experiencing domestic violence, have some red flags in their relationship that they'd like to talk through, or friends and family. We take lots of calls from friends and family who are concerned about their loved ones. We take all of those calls and can help with safety planning, resources, um, and, and those are resources in safety planning regardless of whether somebody actually needs shelter, um, which is only one of the services we provide. So I would encourage you if you have questions and need any services to reach out to one of our fabulous programs. And again, you can find them on our website, odvn.org and you can uh, reach out to our 1-800 number or uh, to any of our programs directly. Okay. Uh, Michaela Deming, thanks so much for your time and the information today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Lawmakers are demanding changes to the statute of limitations in Ohio after a federal judge dismissed Dr. Richard Strauss abuse civil cases. Hear from the chair of the Ohio Democratic Women's Legislative Caucus, who says this is personal. Protesters at the State House speaking out against that so-called trigger abortion ban bill will explain how it would work if passed. And lawmakers push to make it easier to opt out of a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. But the bill didn't make it very far. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. We're going to start with that legislative response to the dismissal of the lawsuits over the abuse by the late OSU team, Dr. Richard Strauss. The judge dismissed the civil cases against the university late last month, citing the statute of limitations. In fact, the judge said the legal system failed the victims. Well, now lawmakers are trying to change it so this does not happen again. For at least one member of the Ohio legislature, this is something of a personal matter. State Representative Lisa Sobecki represents Ohio's 45th Ohio House District. She is also the chair of the Women's Legislative Democratic Caucus and a rape survivor. I just want your viewers to know, I mean, I, I have a, a wealth of information around this because I'm actually a rape survivor myself. So understanding full-heartedly um, what these, at that time, young athletes um, were going through um, at their time at OSU. And then so many years later, I'm hearing a judge say, basically, had we not had limitations, this would have been a different outcome. And uh, my office has heard from uh, many of these survivors. I've worked very closely with them and have heard their stories. And quite pointedly, had we had hearings on these bills, uh, we may be in a little bit different situation in the state of Ohio. The science evolves. And when those cases are worked through, time, statute of limitations could have passed by the time that the technology is caught up with, um, uh, with, these, uh, with these survivors. So yeah, I kind of have a mindset that um, justice should not have a, um, a limitation. And for these um, um, young men, and, and, and rape and incest is not just women, it's also men. And we saw over 177 um, Ohioans that went to the Ohio State University come forward and, and, and tell their story. And, and, and to be told now that, you know, because there was not a law in place on the statute of limitations that um, uh, they can't get relief on um, on what happened to them so many years ago when so many of them came forward and reported it and did everything that they were told to do. And so every time for the years it's taken, it's gone through this, the survivors that I've talked to, they have relived this every single day of their lives and to not have justice, not have justice for them it just breaks my heart. And in the state of Ohio, I value Ohioans, and we should be valuing Ohioans. And these are bills that I believe that should be have hearings and get a vote, bring it to the floor, and protect those Ohio survivors. Chance heard throughout the state house as lawmakers take up a so-called trigger ban on abortion. Members of the Senate Health Committee heard arguments from people in support of SB 123, known as the Human Life Protection Act. The bill would ban abortions in Ohio in the event of a U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. SB 123 makes no exceptions for abortions, even if a woman is raped or if a woman is a victim of incest. We believe that women who have been raped and who have undergone something so 
terribly, terribly violent. We believe that perpetuating that violence against her innocent child, who is another victim in the scenario, doesn't undo the trauma. It doesn't undo the hurt. It only adds another victim to the scenario. It's terrible for all people who are trying to make very personal health care decisions about you know, the future of their lives and their families. Supporters say 12 other states have uh, passed this particular Human Life Protection Act legislation. No action was taken on the bill this week, but we are going to monitor this. We'll keep you posted if and when lawmakers take action and vote on that bill. A Republican House bill to expand vaccine exemptions for Ohioans also getting a lot of attention. The bill passed through the Health Committee with an 11 to 3 vote right there along party lines. 10TV's Olivia Eugenio was there and has more now on what House Bill 435 would mean for you. The Ohio COVID-19 Vaccine Fairness Act was unveiled. This legislation is sensible and responsible. The Republican bill outlines exemptions to the COVID-19 vaccine if passed. Here are the exemptions they're proposing for most employees of both public and private businesses. Medical reasons. If a person has natural immunity, meaning they have had COVID before and have antibodies. And reasons of conscience, which includes religion. Students of both public and private schools would also be allowed the same exemptions. But anyone working in a children's hospital or ICU that includes students who study there are not included in the bill. We want to be cognizant of protecting those that are in the most compromised of states. Employers would, however, be allowed to require other measures for those who do not want to get vaccinated, such as weekly testing or masking. Upper Arlington Democrat Allison Russo was against the bill passing committee. She says it's rushed. Representatives had just minutes to read the bill. The committee also didn't hear from anyone in the community. There are a number of issues that have been added into this legislation that this committee has not discussed before um, that are deeply concerning. The sponsors of the bill said this bill needs to be pushed because of approaching and future vaccine mandates. The sense of urgency is there because these deadlines are looming. If this bill passes, it would be in effect until June 30th of 2023. At the State House, Olivia Eugenio, 10TV News. Proof of vaccination status is now required at more venues across the city. If you are not carrying your vaccine card or negative test result, you may not be able to enjoy a concert or a attend an event. 10TV's Clay Gordon has a look at an option that could be a more convenient way to prove your status. It's kind of becoming second nature, just as you would show your ID to, to drink at a show. Now you just have to kind of show another thing um, to get into the venues. Marissa McClellan of Promo West Productions that operates Express Live, A&R Music Bar, The Basement, and the Newport Music Hall says vaccine requirements were the ticket back to live music in Columbus. I think a lot of people understand that in order to see live music and, you know, the music that they've missed for this last year and a half, this is this is the step that, that needed to be taken. McClellan says there have only been an occasional issue at the door with the new rule in place. Initially, when we first started the requirements, it was it was a little bit of a bumpier road. But now that uh, we've had, gosh, almost two and a half months or so under our belts full of shows, people pretty much know the know the deal now. So what if you don't have your vaccination card with you? Well, this venue also accepts verified apps and websites. But we spoke with one company that makes these bracelets where you could scan it to prove your vaccination status. It's just like a menu. You put your phone on it or, or somebody else's phone on it or an iPad or whatever. 
focus on the QR code, and that takes you right to the landing page. Dr. Tashoff Burden is a practicing physician. He and his son came up with the idea for Immuniband. And it's used by a lot of people for restaurants, for sports venues, for any places. He says the metal plated and silicone bracelet could prevent you from losing your paper card. The process of getting a duplicate, it varies very much from state to state and even from site to site. And it can be long and involved. Also, they don't really fit well in the wallet. Dr. Burden says they are rejecting about 10% of uploads, some for technical reasons like a bad photograph. The company plans on expanding to a subscription model to include updated requirements during the pandemic. Over time, we want to look at other vaccinations, but right now we're just looking at COVID vaccination, booster shots, and PCR testing. And that was Clay Gordon reporting. Dr. Burton says all of your sensitive information is stored on secure servers and can only be accessed with a PIN code to prevent someone from scanning your QR code without you knowing. You may remember the CDC recently endorsed boosters for seniors, medically vulnerable adults, and people with high-risk jobs like healthcare workers. A local doctor was part of the CDC advisory panel that voted 9-6 to six against giving booster shots to adults at a higher risk of exposure to the virus because of their workplace or institutional setting. Dr. Pablo Sanchez works at Nationwide Children's Hospital and is professor of pediatrics at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He explained to us why he voted no. Listen, if I'm going to approve this 18 and over for uh, healthcare workers and other areas of high transmission, I'm like, we have COVID all over. So everybody is at high risk for transmission. I mean, I, and actually it's been shown that healthcare workers are more likely to get COVID outside the healthcare system than here, than in the, the, um, than in the hospital. We have abundant PPE. We know we screen patients. We, we have less transmission from patients, at least currently, I'm not talking about the beginning of the pandemic in the high risk areas, but currently, um, the transmission is really more out in the community. I think I'm more likely to get COVID if I were to go to certain areas, crowded areas. California banned some people from traveling to Ohio for business. It's all because of a clause in the Ohio budget. Governor Mike DeWine responds to that ban from California Next. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The House Criminal Justice Committee took up the Reagan Tokes Act. It's named after murdered Ohio State student Reagan Tokes. In 2017, she was kidnapped, raped, and killed by Brian Goldsby, a convicted sex offender who had recently been released from prison. The bill aims to shore up shortfalls with how ex-prisoners re-enter society and are monitored by parole officers once they leave. The system is definitely broken. Reagan Tokes 
Rachel Anderson, Tamika Turner, these are three young women, daughters, sisters, and a mother, whose lives were taken by violent felons being supervised by a broken adult parole authority system that is understaffed, under-resourced, and has misplaced priorities. House Bill 166 will not bring back these women or the countless victims that those on parole in our community have, have, uh, have felt the pain of these types of crimes, but it does make considerable steps towards addressing some of the circumstances behind these violent crimes. This is a reintroduction of the bill. It's co-sponsored by Representative Kristen Boggs from District 18 and Representative Rick Carfagna from District 68. No actions were taken on that piece of legislation this week, but we'll be sure to track its progress. Now, the state of California is adding Ohio to a list of banned states for state-funded travel. It's because of a clause in our state budget. The clause allows medical professionals to refuse treatment if doing so would violate their personal, moral, or religious beliefs. Critics believe the clause could create situations where LGBTQ plus Ohioans are treated unfairly. California now has travel restrictions for 18 states over laws the governor of California believes are discriminatory. They're talking about their state employees not being able to come to come to Ohio. You know, I'm wondering how probably doesn't happen too often anyway. I'm not, look, I'm not concerned about that. California, they have a right to do what they want to do. Uh, but, you know, our intent was certainly had no intention to discriminate against anyone. A $3.5 trillion reconciliation package took center stage in Washington, D.C. this week. It's aimed at expanding the nation's social safety net and fighting climate change. It includes two years of free college tuition, child care assistance, and more paid maternity and family leave. To pay for all of that, the Democrats are proposing raising the corporate tax rate. On the Senate floor, U.S. Senator Rob Portman pushed back against that plan. He says it would hurt small businesses. I know none of my Republican colleagues are going to support these tax hikes because they believe they would be devastating to small businesses and to our economy at large. And I would urge any of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle who care about our long-term economic health to take a long look at what this tax plan would actually do, what it would mean to our competitiveness, what it would mean to individuals and families, what it would mean to small businesses, and instead make the smart choice to reject these tax increases on the small businesses, the very small businesses that drive the economy in the United States of America. Democrats, including Senator Bernie Sanders, argue the bill will help ordinary Americans who are struggling to make ends meet. Ohio's minimum wage is about to increase starting January 1st. It's going up to $9.30 an hour for non-tipped employees, and it's going to be $4.65 per hour for those who are tipped. The changes come from a constitutional amendment that was passed by Ohio voters back in 2006. It states Ohio's minimum wage should increase each year based on the rate of inflation. Remember, the latest Consumer Index report shows there is a 5.8% inflation increase since last September. So those increases there. Researchers say when it comes to creating jobs, Ohio is currently running behind the rest of the United States. TV's Kevin Landers talked with Michael Shields with Policy Matters Ohio to find out why. Ohio has recovered more than 620,000 jobs since April of 2020. That was our lowest month um, from the COVID recession. But as of August, we're still missing about 264,000 jobs since before COVID-19. Uh, that's 4.7%. 
the U.S. is down about 2.7%. Uh, so the U.S. is recovering jobs about three times as fast as Ohio. Is this a function of Governor DeWine's policies, or is it something else? You know, this is a problem. It took Ohio over seven years to fully recover the jobs that we lost to the Great Recession. That recovery was dragged down by austerity policies that cut government spending just when it was needed the most. Federal policymakers, I think, learned from the the mistakes of that recession and passed historic fiscal stimulus this time. Uh, That includes lots of direct stimulus. It includes robust unemployment compensation that recovered a lot of folks who are usually excluded from state benefits because they're paid too little uh, or because they're they're classified or even misclassified as contractors, not employees. Um, Ohio policymakers, I think, have mishandled a a lot of the opportunity that those payments have created. Um, And Ohio has spent $1.5 billion in American Rescue Plan dollars that were supposed to be used to drive recovery uh, to instead pay off debt borrowed by Ohio's Unemployment Trust Fund. Uh, The fact is we needed to properly fund Ohio's unemployment system long before COVID-19. Employers pay an unemployment uh, tax on only the first $9,000 in wages. Uh, But instead of fixing that, Ohio lawmakers have bailed out our underfunded system with money that should have gone to the people hit hardest by the COVID recession, um, to frontline workers who have uh, kept us safe through this crisis, um, and and to to drive uh, a recovery to drive a robust recovery that really includes everybody. We are gaining jobs. Um, We have gained back a little more than 620,000 jobs uh, since our lowest month, which was in April of 2020. Um, In the first few months uh, after the stay-at-home order that Governor DeWine issued, our jobs recovered pretty rapidly. Uh, But for for the last several months, our job recovery has been uh, pretty slow. It's been uh, recovering at uh, six months over the last six months, it's been averaging about uh, 0.14% um, per month. Uh, so at that rate, it's going to take us right around 43 months to recover all the jobs that we've lost. So what do you think needs to happen as we look down? If you look in your crystal ball and you've seen the numbers, what needs to change in order to jumpstart the economy for the next six months? Sure. So I, I think one of the things that policymakers really have taken away from the last recession is that it, it's government's job uh, to help to drive a recovery when we're uh, coming out of a recession. Um, you know, this is something we've seen historic um, fiscal stimulus, uh, both in direct payments and also through really robust unemployment compensation. Um, unfortunately, Ohio opted, um, Governor DeWine um, blocked uh, $300 in enhanced federal benefits in uh, June of this year to, to folks who've lost their jobs as a result of COVID-19. Uh, in order to drive a, a robust recovery, uh, we need to direct uh, fiscal stimulus to the folks who need it the most, uh, people who have been harmed uh, by COVID-19, and also uh, to, to recognize um, and, and adequately compensate the folks uh, who have really uh, carried us through this, who, who got us through the pandemic um, and are, are um, helping us as, as we recover. And thank you for joining us today. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. 
Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Jay Temmins, who is the National Association of Manufacturers President and CEO. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the uh, NAM is. So the National Association of Manufacturers represents the interests of America's small, medium, and large-sized manufacturers and 13 million men and women uh, who are in the manufacturing industry. Uh, in Washington before Congress and the administration, uh, and we uh, we work to to implement competitiveness policy that allows uh, for more investment, job creation, and wage growth right here in America. And this week you have been in Columbus as part of your Creators Wanted tour, which is a nationwide undertaking. Tell us about that. Yeah, so manufacturing is doing incredibly well right now across the country. It's really strong. A lot of that's because of policies that have been acted, enacted over the past few years on on taxes and regulation. But one of the big challenges that manufacturers have is, quite frankly, Dave, we can't find enough people to do the jobs that we have. And by the way, these jobs are the highest paying jobs of any sector of the economy. But we just can't find folks with the right skills. In, in Ohio alone, there are 115,000 open jobs in manufacturing, and nationwide, there are 900,000 open jobs. So Creators Wanted is designed to inspire the next generation of um, manufacturing workers, uh, young people who are, who are perhaps in the last few years of high school or perhaps in community college or in a four-year institution, and maybe they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their career. Well, manufacturing is not only a, a rewarding and lucrative career, it's pretty exciting. There are lots of different types of jobs in manufacturing that, that can appeal to almost anyone. You uh, grew up in Chillicothe, where, like many cities around Ohio of that size, it's got one or two or three big anchoring manufacturers in town. And back in those days, and I grew up in a town that had a lot of that type of thing, too, jobs were coveted at those types of places. Why are they having trouble finding people or maintaining a staff? Yeah, well, you know, it's a perception problem. In Chillicothe, as, as you noted, my grandfather stood in line for six months during the Great Depression for a job in manufacturing, and he knew that a, jo- that a job and a what turned out to be a lifelong career in manufacturing was going to allow his family to emerge into the middle class. He, he left the farm to go into manufacturing. Today, a lot of people think of manufacturing as those jobs, those very uh, difficult, dirty jobs that existed back in my grandfather's day, which was, gosh, 80 years ago when he when he stood in line for that job, and uh, 90 years ago. And those jobs just don't exist now. The jobs of today, the manufacturing jobs today are very sleek and technology-driven. They involve a lot of robotics and artificial intelligence and augmented reality, all of those things that our kids, you know, like to like to do on video games, and they don't realize, wow, that could actually turn into a, a career for me. <laughs> so, so we're trying to make sure that that uh, through our mobile experience, it's a it's a hands-on kind of an escape room concept where young people can go through it, 
and uh, actually it's not just young people, it's also their parents and teachers can go through and get an idea of what modern manufacturing is all, all about. Honda was uh, a significant sponsor for us and here in Ohio, and there's a room in the, in the uh, mobile experience that shows you how all the different things that go into building a Honda product. And I think, I think folks are gonna be pretty surprised to learn uh, how modern and, and uh, technology-driven manufacturing is today. It seems like if you can get kids at, at the high school level and, and at community colleges aware of the types of, you know, maybe computer know-how that could work in an industry like that that wouldn't necessarily require a full-blown four-year stint at a university, that's gold to get that information out. You're exactly right about that. So sometimes... Um and many times actually, uh, we're looking for folks who have completed high school and are ready to start their career right now. Um, perhaps the job that they're interested in might take a few years of uh, training at a technical school or trade school or perhaps even a community college. There are a few jobs that require four-year degrees or even higher, but there's really something for everyone in manufacturing, which is which is why I get so excited about about telling the story. Last week, I, I saw a, a group of young people who came to uh, view the mobile experience, and and quite honestly, you know, they started out listening, and I don't blame them. They were kind of shuffling their feet, looking down at the ground as as uh, you know, a bunch of people were giving speeches at the launch of this thing. So that wasn't the most exciting thing for them. And so I kind of asked them, you know, thought about a job in manufacturing and not many hands went up. Once they went through that experience, they just, they came alive. They were so excited. They went through the experience and then they came out and they saw our, our platform called Creators Connect, which people can go to at uh, nam.org or, or creatorswanted.org. And they suddenly saw all these jobs that were available, and you could see them saying, "Hey, you know, I might want to do that. I might want to go there." And and so it it really is it really is just bringing this experience to local communities so that young people get an idea of what's available to them. Talking with Jay Timmons, National Association of Manufacturers President and CEO. You mentioned uh, trying to hire people for the right jobs in manufacturing. What is the state of the industry in Ohio? Well, the industry is very strong. You know, we enacted in 2017 um, some some competitive tax policies that that frankly helped us attract investment into the United States. You know, we're, we we we've heard all the stories about about the next dollar being invested outside of the United States. Well, today manufacturers are investing here because we have good tax policy that allows them to be competitive. That's allowed us to to grow jobs in Ohio and. Uh, throughout this country, and it also allowed us to to increase wages at a record level for for three years following following those tax policy changes. So, the, the state of the industry is strong. We have some issues. We have some supply chain problems that that we've all heard about. Those supply chain problems are directly related to the fact that we can't find enough people to work in these facilities to make the goods that we produce. So. So again, all roads, you know, it's a, don't mean to sound trite, but all roads definitely lead back to uh, finding that next generation of, of manufacturing workers, bringing them into our, our uh, manufacturing family and, and uh, allowing us to be competitive for, for many generations to come. 
You mentioned uh, Honda's involved in this, and, you know, the auto industry in general has had kind of a chaotic couple of years as, as we move toward electric vehicles. We've had good news and bad news in the industry. Honda seems, on the surface anyway, to be the most stable of all of them in terms of they, they sort of planted their foot in America right here in central Ohio, and that's just been going strong ever since. 1979 was, was uh, when they opened their first facility, I believe. I believe that was the year. In, in in Ohio and and you know they they've just been going gangbusters but we have we have iconic automakers uh, that are all they are creating our future uh, whether it's through electric vehicles self driving technology all of those things that you think about that how different you know our vehicles are today um, than they were even five years ago and how different they're going to be five ten fifteen years in the future if a young person wants to figure out. How can they help uh, with climate change? How can they help with um, making sure that our air is cleaner and they have an interest in autos? Well, the auto industry is trying to figure that out every single day. We want them. We want these young people to come into our industry, whether it's whether it's Honda or any of the other uh, brands. I can tell you that there's a job waiting for a young person if they are excited about the future and they want to make a positive difference talking with Jay Timmons. He's the president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. What about this Creators Wanted Tour? Where is it going? So the Creators Wanted Tour is is launching in Ohio. Um, I get a little personal pride out of that since I'm a, since I'm a Buckeye and, and uh, an Ohioan. So I'm really pleased and proud that we were able to kick off in Ohio. Then we're going to be going to South Carolina. We're going to be in Kentucky. Uh, we're going to be in Iowa. We're going to be in Michigan. Uh, we're going to uh, even be in Nevada and Texas. It's going to be all over the country uh, this year, and then we're going to figure out uh, what next year brings. We had planned to do this, Dave, starting about a year and a half ago. Then the pandemic hit, so a live, hands-on, in-person experience didn't exactly work in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> but but uh, we were able to relaunch it now that, that things are getting back uh, under control, but during that time period, we actually it, it gave us the opportunity to launch a digital, a virtual experience, where we actually had about six million young people experience uh, experience the the, um, uh, the tour virtually. So we're going to continue that as well. And you know, I'm talking about uh, the fact that we have we we've had to deal as every single American has with the pandemic. That's another thing that that I think folks don't actually always realize manufacturing is literally saving the world right now manufacturers created the vaccine that is allowing us to get this virus to get this pandemic under control so if a young person is interested in medicine or they're interested in in uh, technology or or uh, or store vac- vaccines that can help cure terrible diseases well manufacturing is also right up their alley That's a great point because, you know, we all think about laboratories when we think of vaccines, and yet it's not a laboratory that's putting a billion vaccines out around the world. (laughs) That's right. Well, the laboratory is part of the manufacturing process, too. So when we talk about some of those careers that might require uh, additional education, perhaps a four-year degree or even even more, we have scientists and laboratories. Look, manufacturers believe strongly in science. We are are a science-based industry. But to your point, once the vaccine is created, well, then we have to have uh, people on the front lines making 
not only the vaccine itself, but think of everything that goes into it. Think of the syringe. Think of think of the little tiny bottle that the vaccine comes in. Think of the rubber cap that must go on it and how that rubber cap is is tied to supply chains all over the world because we don't grow rubber trees here in in this hemisphere we have to get that component part from probably southeast asia that has to that has to get into uh, be manufactured into a compound then it comes comes here and is is flattened out to make the cap all of those things are part of the part of the process it's why it's so exciting frankly to work in manufacturing because every single thing that we touch every single day unless it was grown and it was food it was manufactured that kind of thing fascinates me because you know this summer i bought a basketball goal on a pole and you know when you open it up it's everything's wrapped in plastic there's twist ties and all that stuff and every bit of that had to be gathered together from various plants around the world to do it yeah absolutely i mean you got the basketball goal right and so that that was kind of cool that was manufactured but to your point the box the plastic the twist ties the label that went on top of the box you know that was all that's all part of the manufacturing process as well so it's uh it is fascinating to and and it's also fascinating if you're in into logistics or you're into thinking of how how things operate right i mean a lot of my son in particular just loves to figure out how things work and he tends to break things apart destroying them to to figure it out but if you're into that and that's always exciting excited you there are also jobs uh, in logistics and transportation in manufacturing because once the product is made well, we got to get it out the door. We got to ship it to distributors. We got to make sure that it gets into stores so people can buy it, or, or if they want to buy it online through, you know, through that process as well. The other side of logistics is back to that supply chain that I talked about, sourcing the materials around the world to be able to to bring into the factory to to make part of the process of uh, of manufacturing the final product. And just real quick, wanted to ask, uh, I know that the supplies are running behind because of the pandemic worldwide, and there are ships waiting off the coasts. Are you optimistic that eventually we're going to catch up with that in the fairly soon future? Um, look, I think that we, we we have kind of a long-term problem when it comes to labor shortage, um, and that that's exactly why Creators Wanted is so essential right now. Uh, some of the products that are coming in uh, from uh, on container ships can't be unloaded because we don't have enough. And this is not a manufacturing issue. It's a port issue where, where uh, you've got people that are, you, you don't have enough people to unload the product and, and get it uh, on shore. Here in this country where we're manufacturing products here in the United States, the labor shortage is causing us pretty severe uh, shortages of uh, a product, which is why you're seeing prices increase. It's the old you know, economics 101, uh, when you have more demand than supply, prices go up. So so all of those things are kind of knock-on effects of the problem of, of not having enough labor uh, to do the job. So we're competing. I mean, just, you know, to put it out there, put it on, uh, put it on the table, there are shortages, labor shortages in every sector of the economy. So manufacturers today are competing with the service sector or the financial sector. You, you, you name it, we're competing with it. The thing we've got going for us is we're the highest paying jobs in any sector of the economy. Every single day when somebody goes to work, they're going to have a new and exciting challenge. They're never going to get bored. So I know when folks learn about manufacturing, 
they're going to give us a second, third, fourth look and say, hey, this is probably where I want to be. Uh, when I finally start my career. Jay Timmons, he's the president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. If people want more information, Jay, where do they find it? So they can go to creatorswanted.org, or you can also go to nam.org, National Association of Manufacturers. That's nam.org. And we hope to see you on the road. Great. Thanks so much for your time and the information. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Good talking to you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.